like is taken from Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 26, which is found on page 187 in the New Testament section of the Church Bibles. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Listen, I, Paul, am telling you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Once again, I testify to every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is obliged to obey the entire law. You who want to be justified by the law have cut yourself off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. You were running well, who prevented you from obeying the truth. Such persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. I am confident about you in the Lord that you will not think otherwise. But whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. But my friends, why am I still being persecuted if I am still preaching circumcision? In that case, the offence of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would castrate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these who are opposed to each other, to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things, and those who belong to Christ Jesus 
have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, uh, Jenny. And thank you for starting at verse 1 as well, otherwise you'd have missed out on one of my points. So that's good. Um, <clears throat> I'll just start in prayer. Heavenly Father, just thank you for your holy word and thank you that uh, it is like a double-edged sword that um, can really cut to the heart of the matter. I pray that you would open our ears and eyes by your spirit to hear from it this evening. Amen. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm um, Chris. I'm a member of the church family here and I'm very pleased to be speaking to you um, from Galatians 5 this evening. Um, I don't know about you, but in general... I find it quite difficult talking to people outside this sort of context about my faith. Evangelism doesn't come particularly easily to me. It may be a bit of British reserve or um, just a sort of personality trait, but one workaround that I've found, particularly in conversations at work, is to just ask people to oh, just talk about what happened last night or at the weekend. Um, it lets me sort of get things in under the radar, as it were, like uh, well, I was talking to church yesterday uh, about X, or at host group last night we were discussing such and such. And sometimes that sort of thing can lead on to conversations which lead to a bit more depth, actually, things of proper significance about faith and, and meaning. Uh, but not infrequently, though, I sometimes get met with this sort of response of, oh, are you really religious then? And I often struggle to answer that question, or at least answer it well. Although I hope that being a disciple of Jesus is probably the fundamental part of my identity at the core, I don't really consider myself to be really religious per se. And I'm not entirely sure often what they're really asking me as well. They're saying, are you really religious? And in quite a few of Paul's letters, he deals with this idea of being religious. Here, as um, Roland Zuri alluded to, he's written to these churches in this province of Galatia, a number of churches, um, particularly concerned about the tendency for one particular group, these Judaizers, who wish to impose part of Old Testament practice and law onto the churches, particularly onto those Gentile converts to Christianity. They've heard about this new faith, and they're sort of saying, that's great, but if you're a bloke, you need to be circumcised as well. Did we mention that on the way in? Can you imagine that in the narthex? Please welcome, would you like to be circumcised? The simple truth of the gospel, that by ourselves we are powerless and helpless to undo our alienation from God, that through Jesus' death and, and resurrection, that through Jesus' death and resurrection and a, a faith in that, a living, breathing trust in Jesus, well, quite frankly, that's just a bit too easy. I mean, it's a religion after all. Shouldn't there be a few more rules? Shouldn't we have to do a few more things? To really cement in this covenant with the Almighty, couldn't we make some more outward signs of it? And circumcision is is a fairly permanent and, and physical sign of that covenant that God made with Abraham. So perhaps we should include that as well. 
Perhaps we should have a faith in Jesus and circumcision. Maybe a few dietary laws as well, because that always makes you stand out a bit. If you're slightly awkward to cater for, that always helps, because it makes you stand out. That made the Israelites distinctive from those people groups around them in the Near East as they were, as they were becoming a people. And perhaps we should tack a few of those on as well. It seems that even Peter, the same Peter who in the book of Acts had that vision where the sheep came down out of heaven and it was full of all sorts of animals, clean and unclean. And Peter heard the voice and said, get up, kill, eat. And he said, no, not me. I'm, I'm, a, good, I'm a, a good Israelite. I wouldn't do that. And he says, everything that I've said is clean is clean. Um, even that same Peter, he started off... Um, eating with the Gentiles. Um, But he seems to have gone back to this gospel plus approach. Yes, I believe in Jesus, but maybe I need to add back on some extra things as well, just to be sure. Back in chapter 2, Paul recounts when he was in Antioch, um, he opposed Peter to his face, he said, because Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, and then actually a delegation of other Jews came from James and said, what are you doing? And under pressure from them, he withdrew from doing that and started adding back in those Old Testament laws again. So my first point is this, and it perhaps summarizes the whole letter, as Roland says. God's grace is enough. And here in chapter 5, Paul emphasizes this point again, in case the readers of the churches, the people in the churches, hadn't really got it. To those Gentile circumstances, converts who were looking to get circumcised as a means of justification. He has quite a strong message in verse 2 and 3. If you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Every man who lets himself be circumcised is obliged to obey the entire law, every last stroke. That's right, so if you think that obeying the law is the means by which you can be reconciled to God, you better make sure that you obey every last letter. If there's anyone here interested in doing likewise, good news and bad news. The good news is someone has made a comprehensive list of Old Testament laws. Bad news are there's 613 of them. Uh, The mitzvot, as they are called, codified from the Old Testament laws. Um, If you search them online... You can find a helpful list of them with biblical Old Testament references as well. Some of them you might expect, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. Others, perhaps a bit more left field. If you're besieging a city in Ammon or Moab, do not destroy the fruit trees outside the city. It's quite easy, I suppose, for us to keep that one. But every man who lets himself be circumcised is obliged to obey the entire law. And he uses this rather graphic imagery, and I'm sorry for anyone here who's a bit squeamish, but this graphic imagery of a fairly extreme urological procedure. And Paul emphasizes the point thus. If you think that by cutting, cutting yourself will save you, think again. In actual fact, you'll be cutting yourself off from Christ in verse 4. Then down again in verse 12. You may as well cut the whole lot off for all the good it's going to do you. Ouch. Definitely not something to offer in the narthex there. So this central idea of justification through faith, not through works or observing the law, 
was it really at the heart of the Reformation. And that's why sometimes Galatians called Luther's book, because it was so important to him. It, it opened his eyes when he read it for himself and thought, hang on a sec, what am I doing? Others have called it a pocket version of Romans. As Paul gives this message here, a much fuller treatment in, in, in the letter to the Roman churches. And in both in Romans and here in Galatians 5, we see the essential truth and my second point, that it's for freedom that we've been set free. So in verse 1, as Jenny read, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In our natural state, before we find Jesus, in our natural state, we're enslaved to sin. And the law isn't able to save us. But it's more like a light that shines in a dark place and shows up our rebellion against our creator. It's like the torch that shows us the pit that we've fallen into, but it can never be the ladder that will get us out of the pit. It's Jesus who set us free, but free to do what? How then shall we live? Now to the world, the acts of the sinful nature that Paul lists towards the end of the chapter might seem like freedom. There's sexual license, there's carousing, drunkenness, going to parties and something. It, it sounds quite maybe like emancipation almost. Uh, last week, Mark told us at this service, um, he recounted the story of a, uh, a Christian who was in their 10th decade at the time. Um, and they expressed their gratitude that they hadn't actually found Christ until they were in their 70s. As up to that point, they could do what they wanted. Almost as if they'd previously been free and they had to give up their freedom on finding Jesus. Not so, says Paul. And not so, says our own experience of the Christian life. It's for freedom that we've been set free. Giving ourselves over again to the works of the flesh or the acts of the sinful nature, depending on how you translate it, it's not freedom, it's another form of slavery. It's going back to slavery. Willingly enslaving ourselves all over again. Sometimes we're tempted to think that actually these, this list of uh, of acts of the sinful nature are, are just too tempting. The draw is too strong or we're too weak and it'll just overpower us. Their pull on us is too strong for us to turn our back on them and instead to follow the spirit. C.S. Lewis in his um, celebrated essay, The Weight of Glory, addresses this misconception. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. How then shall we live? Now here as elsewhere, Paul reminds us that we've been set free to follow Christ and to look to him. In verse 13 it says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become enslaved to one another. Sometimes when we read the New Testament, I don't know if you ever feel this, sometimes I think there's a bit of a disconnect between Jesus and his, his talking about the kingdom of God 
and the coming kingdom. What's, what is the kingdom of God? What shall we say it's like? And then in Paul's letters, his theology that focuses on the cross, on just, justification through a faith in Jesus. But here, though, actually, we can see complete alignment here. And we can hear Paul echoing Jesus' words. The whole law is summed up in a single command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How liberating for that rather than those 613 mitzvot. So if it's not to indulge the sinful nature, what then is our freedom for? How then shall we live? Paul's already said it's, it's not to be used as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but instead to serve others. But what does our life in the Spirit look like? And here we come to my third point, in that we're called to live by the Spirit and be fruitful. In verse 22, Paul contrasts the works of the flesh that he's listed above with the fruit instead born of the Spirit that lives within us. And I think this sort of list of nine attitudes and behaviours is particularly striking for how universally recognised they are by the world as actually being desirable. It doesn't feel like slavery or burden. Actually, they think, gosh, no, that sounds good. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I don't know, but I don't think they're necessarily what my colleagues have in mind when they say to me, are you really religious then? Scratching the surface of what they do mean, it seems sometimes they might have in mind certain activities like going to church, going to a home group, uh, praying, maybe memorising Bible verses. I was once asked if I did that. And I sort of sheepishly said, yes, appreciating that it sounded like Mrs. Mangle in Neighbours, anyone who can cast their mind back that far. Or perhaps it was about holding certain beliefs about the universe and the nature of humanity. And maybe sometimes in less charitable moments, what they really mean is, I don't agree with you about politics and ethics. But it's not so the fruit of the Spirit. Few would argue with the intrinsic goodness of this fruit. An outlook and a life that most people would actually approve of and to which many of us actually would aspire. One thing I found particularly striking uh, in the last few days since the death of Her Majesty the Queen is how the media and the world at large have reflected on her life. Now, the word duty seems to crop up an awful lot, um, and it seems to feature quite frequently. But also, many have observed how her life was being marked by faithfulness. Faithfulness to God, faithfulness to others, to her role, marked out by self-control, self-sacrifice, by patience, kindness, and goodness. I don't know if it's just me, but I think certainly in recent years, the, the Queen seemed to be increasingly explicit about her own Christian faith. Even prior to that, though, regardless of what her observers thought about the whole idea of the monarchy, nearly all of them agreed that hers was a life marked with characteristics of which all could approve. She was bearing fruit. Jesus acknowledged what we perceive at a human level, that a person's actions and words reveal what's on the inside of them. 
Is it the Holy Spirit growing within us and bearing fruit, or is it our old sinful nature? Luke's Gospel records him teaching the crowds like this. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of the heart, produces good, and the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Down in verse 25, Paul exhorts the Galatians church again to be guided by the Spirit. In other translations, to keep in step with the Spirit, walk alongside. One of the problems with focusing on being religious rather than being guided by the Spirit, that those practices and routines that are actually there meant to help us, to give us a rhythm to the Christian life, can occasionally become an end in their own right. Observance of the law was being seen as a necessary extra to the gospel by the churches in Galatia, and therefore denying the power of the cross. The group of people who attracted Jesus' sharpest criticism in the Gospels were the people who were really super religious, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. He was often um, quite a, say, challenging dinner guest to Jesus. He was invited to dine at the house of a Pharisee, and his host noticed that Jesus didn't ceremonially wash his hands before eating. And uh, the Pharisee questioned him about this. Jesus' response to him was quite pointed. He said, the Pharisees are more concerned with washing the outside, the externals, than what they're like on the inside. They took great care to give a tenth of every single individual herb away to tithe their herbs, but then neglected justice and the love of God. So how then shall we live? By remembering that God's grace is enough. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. It is, after all, for freedom that we've been set free. So let us then be fruitful in that same spirit. Amen.